Let me stand next to your fire. You know, I really believe every song ever written is about God. Even if Jimi Hendrix doesn't know it, that's what he's, that's what he's singing about. Moses says, Scripture says, in, in several uh, places, uh, several different places, the Bible says, our God is consuming fire. Jeremiah 23, 29, his word is like fire. Isaiah 10, 17, his holy one, a flame of fire. I have only one burning desire. Let me stand next to your fire. No, Harry, no, don't look at the light. I can't help it, it's so beautiful. We better pray. Lord God, you, you are light. That's what scripture says, you're light. And Jesus, you're the light of the world. And Lord God, you are consuming fire. And so, Lord, it makes sense that we are drawn to you like a bug is drawn to a bug zapper. <laughs> I saw the light, I saw, ah, so Lord God, um, would you help us understand how it is that we could burn and not be burnt. Lord God, would you help us to preach your gospel in Jesus' name, amen. Arthur, Arthur, King of the Britons. Oh, don't grovel. One thing I can't stand, it's people groveling. Sorry. And don't apologize. Every time I try to talk to someone, it's sorry this and forgive me that and I'm not worthy. What are you doing now? I'm averting my eyes, oh Lord. Well, don't. Now knock it off. Yes, Lord. Right. Arthur, King of the Britons, your knights of the round table shall have a task to make them an example in these dark times. Good idea, oh Lord. Of course it's a good idea. Behold, Arthur, this is the Holy Grail. Look well, Arthur, for it is your sacred task to seek this Grail. That is your purpose, Arthur. The quest for the Holy Grail. I've shown that clip too many times. But I don't care, because it illustrates uh, my point. Arthur sees the light, receives the call of God, and freaks out. He gets just ridiculous. In fact, the whole movie is ridiculous, kind of like church history is ridiculous. You, you know, the Crusades were largely a quest for the Holy Grail. And so, sensing the call of God, the church massacred thousands upon thousands of Jews, Muslims, Christians in the Middle East looking for the container that Christ chose to hold his blood. That's ridiculous. And evil. It's religious. You belong to a political party or a social club that was tied to as much bigotry, misogyny, homophobia, violence, and sheer ignorance as religion is, you'd resign in protest. To do otherwise is to be an enabler, a mafia wife, 
for the true devils of extremism that draw their legitimacy from the billions of their fellow travelers. If the world does come to an end here, or wherever, or if it limps into the future, decimated by the effects of a religion-inspired nuclear terrorism, let's remember what the real problem was. According to Bill Mayer, the real problem was religion. But you know, trusting Bill Mayer's knowledge of good and evil is also a, a religion. And yet he does have a point. An awful lot of evil has been done in the name of religion. Crusades, inquisitions, holy wars, jihad. Anytime human beings start talking about ultimate realities like justice, righteousness, the knowledge of good and evil, it's like we stand next to some sort of fire and get burned by the fire. And yet if there is no fire, there's no light. There's no such thing as reason or rationality or truth or, or, or life. And I'm not just talking on some kind of global political level. I'm talking a very personal level. How do I look at God? How do I talk about God and, and not just go nuts, insane? I've grown up around pastors and, and preachers. And let me tell you, it's, it's not a very safe profession. One of my good friends and pastors uh, pastor of a large, successful church, he, he asphyxiated himself. A lot of people got burned. Both of the pastors I work for in California, guys I love, pastors of large churches, very, very uh, successful in the world's eyes, authors, speakers, both of them had multiple affairs and turned out were living lives of deception. I, I remember one of them telling me, Peter, because talking with him after, going, what the hell happened? And he said, Peter, I just was so stressed. Why was he stressed? I think it was the fire. He, he, he really preached fire and was burned by the fire. And, and it's not just pastors, it's anyone. How do you handle God's will? How do you handle God's call? How do you handle God's word? How do you handle a law like love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself? I mean, the more you handle that law, the more you try to fulfill that law, the more you will be burned by that law. And if you feel responsible for other people obeying that law, the more you will burn them with, with that law. How do you handle God's law? How do you handle God's word? You know, the greatest prophecy ever spoken in scripture is spoken in the New Testament part of your, your Bible, and, and I believe uh, it was the greatest. It was spoken by the high priest Caiaphas, and check this out. His job was literally to stand next to the fire in the temple, and it was him that prophesied, one man must die for the sins of the nations and the sin of the nation. And then he proceeded to have Christ crucified. <laughs> he stood next to the fire. He prophesied fire. Then he crucified fire and then was literally consumed by fire 40 years later as Rome sacked Jerusalem. How, how, how can people get close to God 
and yet look so very different than Jesus? I mean, I think maybe that's part of the question because I, I, I think they really do get close to God. I mean, people that really speak about God and, and speak fire and yet can be so uh, different than Jesus. How can people get so close to God, look so very different than Jesus? How can we burn with God and not be just devoured by God? How can we stand next to the fire? And it's not just, it's not just us. Folks in Jerusalem, they ask this, Isaiah 33, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? How do we hear the call of God and not go insane? How do we hear the call of God not go insane and not drive others insane? Destroy the world. How do we hear the, the, the call of God and, and, and not destroy the world trying so very hard to save the world? How do we do that? Exodus chapter two. Moses begins to hear the call of God. You know the story. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. But while they were slaves in Egypt, they began to multiply like rabbits, which really stressed out the Pharaoh. And so the Pharaoh made a law that all Israelite males upon birth would be slaughtered. But one Israelite woman gave birth to a baby boy, a beautiful baby boy, and three months old, three months old, she hid him in a basket of reeds down by the Nile. And Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe in that spot at the, at the Nile, found the baby boy, took the baby boy, and ends up hiring the baby boy's mother to raise him and nurse him as she adopts him as her son. In other words, he's prince of Egypt. He's a prince of Egypt, educated in all the ways of the Egyptians, writes Luke in Acts 7.22, educated in all the ways of Egyptians, and now, quote, mighty in word, remember that, mighty in word and mighty in deed. Just, just, just think of it. I mean, if ever there was a perfect candidate for savior of Israel, don't you think it was a slave who became the prince? Don't you think it was Moses? When he was 40, mighty in word and mighty in deed. Exodus 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, that's 40, according to, okay. Um, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And Moses began to burn, right? What's he burning? He's burning with indignation. He's burning with the knowledge of good and evil. He stood next to the fire. He sensed the righteousness of God. And we know what he's thinking. Number one, I'm the man. I'm the man for the job. And number two, I've got the plan. I'm the man with the plan. Pharaoh will listen to me. And number three, I have the resources. I'm the prince of Egypt. Mighty in word, mighty in deed. He felt the fire. And he did something. Verse 12, he looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? You see, he's feeling that responsibility. Why do you strike your companion? And the man answered, who made you prince? Judge over us. Do you mean to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And he thought, surely the thing is known. 
When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses feels the fire, and he's burned by the fire, <laughs> right down to the edge of nothing. Think of it, he's stripped of Egypt, he's stripped of Israel, He's stripped of uh, his family, stripped of opportunities, all those accomplishments, all those miraculous wonders uh, that happened to him as a boy, slave growing up in the household of the Pharaoh. He's stripped in the prime of his life. He sought to save lives and only brought death. He sought to liberate and only increase the bondage. He felt the fire and everyone got burned. And now he sits alone in the wilderness by a well. Well, by Exodus chapter three, Moses has not been prince of Egypt. He's not been prince for, for 40 years. He's no longer considered wise, and it appears that he's forgotten how to speak. For 40 years, he's been herding somebody else's sheep, married to a woman whose name sounds like Zipper. As our next scene opens, Moses is not desperately seeking God. I think this is important to point out. Moses is not studying. Moses is not fasting or out witnessing. Moses is definitely not trying to save the world. It's just one more extremely ordinary day, just like the last 14,800 days. Sheep. Goats and bushes. Ordinary, everyday bushes. Ordinary, everyday Moses. 80 years old, 80 year old, ordinary Moses. Chapter three, verse one. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord, remember him, the angel of the Lord, we've been talking about him, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is, is not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, when the Lord saw that he turned, the Lord saw something in Moses, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, see what? A bush, a bush, burning and yet not burnt, like, like a, a bug at home in a bug zapper. Like wood that held living fire and was not consumed. A bush burning and not burnt. When, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see that, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid, afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. 
I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 10, come, I will send you. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, if I'm Moses, I'm thinking, now? You gotta be kidding! Now? I, I was a slave boy who became a prince, and now I'm a prince that's been turned into a, I was 40 years old, God! Prime of my life, and now I'm 80. Now? You gotta be kidding, now? God, what's the point of the miraculous ascent? I mean, what was the point of that whole thing with the basket and the baby and Pharaoh's daughter and growing up uh, mighty in deed and mighty in word? What was the point of that? Now? You want now? I mean, I've been, really been chewing on this story this week. I, you know, I think we assume that all that stuff, all that stuff that happened to Moses in the first 40 years enabled him to do the task that God called him to. But you read it carefully and you'll see that it really had nothing to do with the task that God called him to. I mean, as far as Pharaoh, Egypt, and Israel are concerned, Moses could have been a peasant all his life. I mean, this is 40 years later. There's, a, there's another generation yeah, see, it's not uh, Moses' resume that frees the Israelites, but the power of God. So if Moses' resume mattered, it, it only mattered in that it showed Moses it didn't really matter. <laughs> At least not in the way that Moses thought it mattered. It, it mattered for it was used by God to utterly decimate Moses' ego, his ego. Soren Kierkegaard wrote this. God created everything out of nothing. And everything which God is to use, he first reduces to nothing. Do you believe that you are created out of nothing? I doubt it. For if you believe that, created by God out of nothing, I think you'd be impossible to offend. <laughs> and you'd never get embarrassed. For you would have no pride. <laughs> and for you, uh, to you, everything, including yourself, would be grace. All grace. Well, anyway, if, if Moses' resume mattered, it mattered by showing it, it, it didn't matter. And check this out, Moses' story is kind of like your story, kind of like our story. We, we work and work and work, work and work and work to, to build our resume, right? We work and work and work to build our kingdom. We work and work and work to build our Jerusalem, and then it all turns to dust, and we die. And if we're saved, we're saved by grace. And we turn around and realize that we were created by grace. It's all grace. There is nothing but grace. Everything else is illusion and lie. 
And that means my pride, my ego, is a lie. Guys like uh, Richard Rohr and my friend uh, Bob Belts, who pastors down in Littleton, guys in the men's movement, they talk about the fact that men spend the first 40 years or so making an ascent, and they use this diagram. Looks like this. The first 40 years from birth making an ascent. They build their lives until they have a crisis, <laughs> an identity crisis uh, in which they face their own mortality. Some men don't get the message that they're going to die. They live in denial and just focus on continuing the ascent. And if they pull it off, we have a name for them. Um, we call them successful. They just keep building and building and building bigger and bigger and bigger egos. Bigger and bigger and bigger barns, uh, to use Jesus' phrase in the story in Luke chapter 12. Just keep bigger, bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger barns until they die. But, but God doesn't call that success. In fact, he calls that man in Jesus' story a fool, an old fool. Well, now, most men can't continue the ascent. Because they're, they're, just not, they're just not able. But they still try. They still desperately try, and they still don't get the message. Uh, Bob says that they become what he calls bitter old men. But some make a descent. I, I mean a spiritual descent. They embrace the descent, embrace humility, until they become what Bob calls holy fools. He says, if it happens at all, it usually happens around 80. <laughs> well, imagine how Moses felt. God, I, I know I failed. I know I messed up back there when I was 40. I know I failed. Now just leave me alone. Just let me be a bitter old man, herding sheep. I mean, it's one thing to lose everything and, and herd sheep, but it's quite another to go back with nothing and act like you're the boss of everything, to stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. I mean, talk about foolish, right? Even more foolish because of Moses' history. Talk about foolish. Moses must have felt like a fool. Maybe he still has just a little ego. <laughs> so anyway, Moses begins to argue with this burning bush, burning and not consumed. It's the Lord, we know from verse four, and yet it's also the angel of the Lord. It's God and the messenger of God, the word of God, messenger of God. Moses argues with this burning bush, verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, but I will be with you. So get what he's saying. Moses is saying, God, you got the, the wrong guy, but he's soon going to learn it, it isn't who am I. That's not the issue. It's not who am I, but who I am is. He, he says, God, um, uh, you got the wrong guy. And God says, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you. This is going to be the sign. Okay, check this out that I have sent you. This is the sign. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, 
When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Did you catch that? You want proof, Moses, that this is going to work? And I think he kind of wanted proof before, not after, right? You want proof that this is going to work, Moses? After you've done it, you'll meet me on this mountain. You see, faith is a journey, but not trusting in a plan. Faith is a journey trusting in the character of a person. That is, trusting in who I am is. Well, anyway, Moses thinks that, that God has the wrong guy and the wrong plan. Next verse. Then Moses said to God, well, if I, I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What am I going to tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, we've spoken upon the profound significance of that name several times, but I'm sure at the time, Moses is thinking, what? <laughs> like that's gonna help? But God continues. He's familiar with them. He says, say to this people, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt and I promise, I promise, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. I promise. No conditions. I promise. Does God keep his promises? We remember the story. They all die in the wilderness, including Moses. They all die except for a, a man named Joshua and his friend Caleb, which means dog. Joshua and his dog make it. <laughs> so does God keep his promises? Now, just, just hold that thought. Hold that question. Uh, uh, chapter 3, God goes on giving instructions. Moses keeps arguing. He argues, God, you got the wrong guy. You got the wrong plan. And God, you got the wrong equipment. Chapter 4, verse 1, then Moses said, but behold, God, they, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, Moses, what is that in your hand? See, God doesn't need an army. He, he doesn't need money, degrees, uh, resumes. He doesn't need virility, good looks, and youth. He just wants what's in your hand. What's in your hand? A stick? Five loaves and two fish? A widow's mite? What's in your hand? What's that in your hand? And Moses said, a staff. That's basically a stick. And he said, Moses, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and Moses ran from it. Ah! But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand, Moses, and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff, a stick again in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So 
Amazing, just think, 40 years earlier, Moses had thought, he had thought, I am the right guy with the right plan and the right stuff, and now he thinks I'm the wrong guy, wrong plan with the wrong stuff, and that's when God calls him. It appears that you can never be too old, too weak, too much of a failure to receive the call of God. However, you can be too young, too strong, and too much of what the world calls a success. In other words, you can be too proud. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Well, in chapter four, God continues to show Moses just amazing signs. And he tells Moses about the plagues. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh Lord, I, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech, slow of tongue. Uh, do you get what he's saying? He's saying, God, um, don't you get it? I am not some giant oak. I am not some great redwood. I'm just an ordinary bush, says God, or says Moses, to this bush aflame with God, the glory of God. And the Lord said to Moses, Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. But Moses said, oh my Lord, please, please send somebody else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. It began to burn against Moses. What was God burning? What was God angry with? Well, wasn't it Moses's ego? <laughs> Whatever was left of Moses' pride. You see, it's our ego that arrogantly says, I can. And it's also our ego that arrogantly says, I can't, I can't. Humility is, is not exalting myself, and humility is not condemning myself. Humility is surrendering myself to the judgment of God. And so if he says I can, I can. If he says I can't, I can't. If he says I can go to Egypt and set the captives free, I can. If he says I'm forgiven, I am. If he says I'm a treasure, I am. If he says I am his masterpiece, I am. If he says I am absolutely worthless to him beyond compare, I am. Who the hell am I to argue with God? That's humility. See, ultimately, judgment is not who I am, but who I am is. And so humility is, is not judging myself, saying I can't or I can. Humility is believing God can, and God will do what God says he will do. Humility is trusting I am who is the creator. Pride is believing that you are your own creator. Humility is trusting the creator and so wanting the will of the creator. Humility is faith 
in the Creator. And you see, this is what's truly shocking, I think, about this entire story, that God is out there in the wilderness going to all this trouble with Moses. That above all, God seems to be wanting faith in grace in Moses. I mean, just think about how weird this story is. Has it not become obvious, will it not become obvious as the story continues, that God has the power to simply levitate the entire nation of Egypt into the air, out, out of Egypt, and, or into, out of the nation of Israel, out of Egypt, and just plop them down in Palestine? He could do that. But that's not the issue. It appears the heart of Moses is the issue. In other words, God doesn't need Moses. God wants Moses to want what God wants. And that's faith in grace. And grace through faith that sets the captives free. God wants faith in grace. And maybe that's the point of the whole journey. Maybe that's the point of your journey. Maybe that's the point of our journey. It's not to get us there, but to get us to want to be there when we are there. And maybe there is God himself, the consuming fire. Uh, like he himself is our promised land, and maybe we are his, like his house, his, his temple, his people, his body, his bride, his sanctuary, destined to be filled with fire. Well, anyway, chapter four. God makes some concessions to Moses. You remember, okay, bring Aaron along, whatever. Um, Moses uh, continues to, to argue, but, but finally he goes, and you know how it turns out. Moses turns out to be the most powerful man alive. Called down plagues, split the sea, liberated an entire nation, but check this out. Not when he was 40 years old and prince of Egypt, but when he was 80 years old and a holy fool. Numbers 12, three. Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Isn't that something? <laughs> That's upside down. <laughs> meekest and most powerful. Like when he was weak, then he was strong. And so the meek, Jesus wasn't joking around. The meek really will in inherit the earth. Humble and meek, and yet he baptized Egypt with fire from heaven. It was a pillar of fire that led him right through the sea and on through the wilderness. It was fire that met him on the mountaintop. It was fire that rested on the Ark of the Covenant where Moses would talk to God face to face. And isn't that something? For Moses, God had a face in the fire. Who's God's face? Well, anyway, when Moses would come out of that uh, sanctuary where he'd speak to God over the ark after standing next to the fire, well, Moses' face would begin to glow with fire, burning and not burnt, like a burning bush. Don't just stand by the fire. Become the fire. 
And what is fire? Well, think about it. Fire is energy, right? In the Old Testament, they call lightning, uh, they don't call it electricity. What do they call it? They call it fire from heaven, uh, electricity. So I had a great, I had this great idea and I brought some fire with me to church today. It's the battery from, from my truck. And, and you see how it works. This is the way, this is the way it works. Electricity goes from from one pole of the battery to the other pole of the battery. Energy flows from one pole to the other pole. And so, look, you can even kinda, you can even kinda see it. See the energy? Wow, awesome, that's energy. And so anyway, I had this great idea. I said, well, gosh, I, I know what I'll do. I'll bring the energy, I'll bring the fire to church in the sanctuary, and then I'll just attach these things to my tongue, to my tongue, and I will become a burning bush. Are you ready? Are you got the cameras ready? <laughs> or maybe not. Because you know, I, I was thinking about that Bugs Life video. Remember that video <laughs> at the start? Um, I mean, I'm thinking probably this is what would happen. Uh, I would burn, but I'd be burnt. <laughs> I might catch on fire, and yet I'd, I'd be consumed. But now, but now I was thinking some more, because this is a really weird thing. Okay, think about this. And when that happened, um, as I would be burning up in flame, this, this copper wire would not. The electricity is flowing through my body, but it's also flowing through the copper wire. Uh, this copper wire wouldn't even get hot. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because copper is a good conductor of electricity. In other words, um, the energy flows through the metal without resistance. However, human flesh is a poor conductor of electricity. My flesh offers uh, quite a bit of resistance and so I get burned. Fire's energy. Things that resist the energy get burned. And check this out. Also things that store energy, things that hang on to energy, they also burn and get burned. So like plants, plants store energy, light energy, and when they burn, they release that energy. That's why wood normally burns. That's why we burn. Well, anyway, God is fire, and God is love. Song of Solomon 8, 6, we've been saying it. Love is strong as death. It flashes, the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. God is fire, and God is love. The word of God is fire, and the word of God is love. The will of God is love. Maybe we're resistant to love. or try to hang on to love. Maybe we don't receive love, and so we don't give love. Maybe we hang on to love as if we like owned love, 
or controlled love, in the illusion that we create love, when in fact, God is love, our creator. Maybe we're poor conductors of love and so get burned by love. And what is it in us that's so resistant to love? Well, isn't it the ego? And what is the ego? Because I know that's a psychological term and people use it in all kinds of different ways, but, but, but I, I think that I'm talking about just the way we normally use it, like pride. I mean, what's the ego? Uh, well, I think ego is this. Ego is a lie stuck in my flesh. Ego is that thing in me that actually believes I create love rather than that I am created by love. It's the thing in me that believes I'm responsible for love rather than that love is responsible for me, uh, that believes I must you know, possess love rather than be possessed by love. Well, that I must create love rather than be created by love, that I must control love rather than be controlled by love. And so when I read, you will love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself, I don't hear a prophecy that God will fulfill. I hear a law that I must fulfill. And so I capture love. I use love, I control love, and in the end, I crucify love. And God is love. See, it's my ego that resists love and is thus burned by the fire, which is love. So how do I handle the call of God? How do I handle the word of God? How do I handle the will of God? How do I handle the love that is God? Well, definitely not with my ego. Human religion is human ego, playing with fire, handling the fire, trying to use the fire, rather than surrendering to the fire, and so we all get burned by the fire. It's the knowledge of love, rather than the surrender to love. It's the knowledge of the good without surrendering to the good. It's reading the law and trying to fulfill the law in the power of the flesh. The law is the knowledge of love rather than the presence of, the, of, of love. It, it's standing by the fire, refusing to be filled with the fire. Religion is ego. And ego is pride. And pride is burned by grace. And God is grace, absolutely free, unencumbered, unrestricted, unlimited love. And God has arranged all things in order to reveal his love, which is grace, which is himself, which is the fire. You know, Exodus uh, chapter three uses a very um, obscure Hebrew word which gets translated just as, as, as bush. In fact, it only appears in Exodus, uh, in this passage, in Exodus three, and in one other passage in all of scriptures, Deuteronomy 33, 16. Moses is saying goodbye to the people of Israel at the edge of the wilderness, and he, he's dishing out blessings. And Moses says, may the Lord bless this land with ratzon. Now, I don't know if I said that right, but 
you, you, uh, Allison, you know how to say it right, so you ask Allison after the service. It says, may the Lord bless the Lord with ratzon, which means God's goodwill, God's pleasure, the pleasure of God, God's delight, God's favor, or, or God's grace. So this is literally what Moses said. May the Lord bless this land with the grace of God that dwells in the bush. See, Moses was saying that was grace on the bush. It was grace. The bush was literally a flame with grace, a flame with God. And so for 80 years, God had prepared Moses to see it. And at the bush, Moses sees grace and surrenders his pride. In the end, our ego is crucified by grace at the cross of Christ. And so at the bush, Moses sees grace, surrenders his pride, and God sets him aflame, a holy fool, aflame with the glory of God. Now, Moses, I send you to set the captives free. Now. So anyway, I was thinking, why am I free? or at least becoming more free, or at least on the road to freedom. Why am I on this journey of faith? And, and as I've thought about it, I've thought about it a lot, and you know, it wasn't some argument that convinced me. I mean, even though that's helpful, they're, they're helpful. It wasn't some sermon that I heard that's helpful, but it wasn't that. It, it wasn't religion, like you gotta do this or else, you know, whatever. I mean, the, people get stressed, but, but it really wasn't that. It was a bush. I turned aside because I saw a bush, and the bush was my dad. I think I had a holy fool for a dad, which is pretty cool. I mean, for the first part of dad's life, he really was quite a success, successful pastor. But later in life, he just got the snot kicked out of him by church. By the time he was 80, I don't think he hardly even had an ego. And yet, he was just aflame with God. I mean, he loved people like nobody that I've ever met. Now, you know, you don't get to know many people that well, so you may know some holy fools, but for me, he, he, was, he was it. I remember just watching him at times and thinking, wow, I mean, really kind of even being confounded by this. Like, Dad, you actually love people rather than use people in order to, you know, feed your own ego. In his 80s, I'm not sure he even had an ego. And check this out. He was happy. Now, think about when you're happy. Think about a moment where you just experienced happiness. I mean, where you experienced ecstasy, okay? Ecstasy. Wasn't it a moment in which you lost your ego? A moment in which you stopped judging yourself, analyzing yourself, condemning yourself, or exalting yourself? Wasn't it a moment when you lost your ego? A moment when you lost your life and then found it? Well, that was a bush, a flame with love, not the knowledge of love, but, but the presence of love. He was like a, a burning bush. Maybe, maybe you are a burning bush. 
You know, that's what really makes folks in this world turn aside. Sets the captives free. Do you think you're too old? Do you think you're too weak? Do you think you've experienced too much failure? Well, into his 80s, uh, for the last few years of his life, my dad would just sit on the leather couch in the back of my big fancy new church with his oxygen bottle, sucking on his oxygen bottle. And literally, young men would like line up just to see my dad, or I think even more it was to be seen by my dad. When I was 42, my dad died. When I was 45, I, I was a prince, but my kingdom was crumbling. My dad had died. I was in a crisis. I would be exiled from my kingdom. I would be literally exiled from a world of stuff that fueled my ego, a world of stuff that I thought, I thought, oh, this is it. This is my calling. And I've told you how I had just preached and served communion one Sunday right before my kingdom fell apart. I remember I had served the cup and then I came down, sat down next to Susan and Susan grabbed me and she said, Peter, Peter, I just saw your dad. I remember he had died three years before. She said, I just, I just saw your dad. He was standing in front of us and Peter, he was so, he was so young and he was so alive and he was so excited and he had this like bowl in his hand and he leaned forward and he said, Susan and Peter, do not be afraid to drink the cup that the Lord has for you. And then she said, Peter, um, his eyes, it was his eyes, his eyes were like on fire, flames of fire. See, my dad is a burning bush, burning and not consumed. And I know what's in the cup. It's fire, it's love, it's the grace that burns away my ego and sets me free. It flows from a tree that bleeds holy fire. Well, anyway, Moses was like a burning bush. My dad, I'm convinced, is a burning bush. But what is the burning bush? Because our text makes it clear that God spoke to Moses when he turned aside to see the bush burning and not consumed. What is the burning bush? Well, we know it's, it's wood. It's wood that holds the love of God, grace of God, and fire of God. And it's there that we see the angel of God, a man, and yet God somehow burning with love. It's there we hear the word of God. It's there that we are finally humbled and set free. It's there that we die to ourselves and are filled with holy fire, set on fire with love. It's there on the mountain of God, burning and not burnt, like a man with no ego, fully aflame with God. Well, anyway, if you know the story, you know that Moses still had some ego. It's like the burning bush did a job but didn't quite fully finish the job or something. 
And so Moses still got burnt. It's a fascinating story. It's about how, you know, at the start, he struck this rock three times like God told him to, and water came out. Later in the story, he tells him to speak to the rock, but Moses gets kind of pissed off or something because he must be burning, you know? And so he does it again in anger at the rock. This is fascinating. St. Paul says, well, actually, that rock was Christ. I mean, you can go think about all that uh, however you want. But anyway, in Deuteronomy 31, 16, we, wrote, we read that Moses sleeps with his fathers. In other words, he dies in the wilderness and descends into Sheol. He dies in the wilderness without entering the land. And yet God said, I promise, I promise, I will bring you into the land. How? 1,300 years later, a man named Joshua in Hebrew. In English, you'd pronounce it Jesus. He climbs a mountain with three other guys named Peter, James, and John. And there he's transfigured before them. His clothes become white as light, and his face shines like the sun. Now that's, that's some fire. He is a man fully on fire with the glory of God. He's the prince that became a slave. And suddenly, Moses appears standing next to him on the mountain in the promised land. And this guy, Peter, he's, he's called the first pope. But anyway, Peter freaks out, remember? And he gets all religious. <laughs> but Moses, he just talks to Jesus like he's an old friend. And maybe he is. He is what Moses turned aside to see. So how do, how do we get to the promised land? How do we set the captives free? How are we finally humbled and set aflame with the glory and love that is God? Well, we live our lives. And we turn aside to see this. Jesus, the angel of Yahweh, the glory of God, the word spoken into the void, who on the night he was betrayed took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. He took the grail. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Drink of it. Don't just stand by the fire. Be filled with the fire. And one day, you'll see it. Every bush aflame with God. Every person on fire with glory. Everything filled with love, and God is love, because one day the earth will be flooded with fire until it's burning, but no longer burnt. This table is the edge of that day. This table is the edge of the great day. This table is the edge of the great banquet. And I tell you, sometimes the older I get, the more I just ache for it. Ache for that day. For, for on that day, I'll sit there at table with 
Peter, James, and John. I'll sit there with Moses and all of Israel. I'll sit there with my dad. I'll sit there with people that I've hurt. And I'll sit there with people that have hurt me. And we'll all just start laughing, <laughs> drunk with the grace of God, baptized in holy fire, at home in the promised land, with God at home in us, forever burning and no longer burnt. So come to the table. Tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. As you come, worship him. Uh, worship him by making a sacrifice. And do you understand what the sacrifice is? The sacrifice is your ego. That's why it's scary. But you see, uh, on the other side is ecstasy. The kingdom of God. Uh, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine after you've come to the table. If you'd like to go to the corners of, this, of the room, there'll be members of our ministry team, uh, prayer team. They'd love to pray with you, spend some time praying with you, um, and then go back to your seat and don't leave. Keep worshiping. You see, you were made for this, made for worship in the kingdom of God. Amen. Because you are a hunk of burning love. You are the hunk of hunk of burning love. And Lord God, this is good news. You humble us in order to set us on fire that we might become a hunk of burning love like you. And love is ecstasy. In Jesus' name, Lord God, we thank you for who you are. And because of who you are, we say, we'd like to follow. Can you just tell Lord God that in your heart? Just tell him, God, I, I don't know exactly where we're going. I don't know exactly how the journey is gonna feel, but, but, but I, I want to follow you. Do you tell him? In Jesus' name we say it, amen. Now think about this, because we talked about being humbled this morning, and that freaks some people out. Think about Moses, 80 years old, wandering around on the west side of the wilderness, back side of the wilderness, been herding sheep for 40 years. How do you think he felt? I think he must have felt at times like God hated him, like God cursed him, when in fact God was arranging absolutely everything to bless him in order to set him on fire. You see, the fire burned for Moses. And you understand? The fire burns for you. And God is Lord over your successes and Lord over your failures, and he uses it all to set you on fire, that you might forever burn and not be burnt in the kingdom of God, the glory of God, the love of God, you're home. You're on your way home. 
And that's good news. In Jesus' name, believe it.